When I stepped back and thought about it, what caused the U.S. to achieve that economic success and what caused China also to achieve its economic success, there were some awfully interesting parallels. Welcome to the Business Class Podcast, where we dive into conversations with alumni, students, faculty, and staff from the University of Dayton School of Business Administration. You'll hear career advice, conversations about ethical decision-making in business, and listen to stories from life on the UD campus. Here's your host, Dean Trevor Collier. Today, I'll be joined by 1976 UD SBA graduate, Tom Albrecht. Tom currently serves on the UD Board of Trustees and is the Vice Chair of the Board of Directors of the National Bureau of Asian Research, a policy think tank focused on U.S. and Asia-Pacific relations. He spent 40 years as a practicing lawyer with Sidley Austin LLP, including almost 20 years as the Managing Director of Sidley's Asia-Pacific offices and almost eight years living in Hong Kong. Thanks for joining me today, Tom. Oh, my pleasure, Trevor. I uh, actually been looking forward to uh Conversation we're about to have is something I really enjoy having with uh, uh, as many people of, as are willing to tolerate it. So uh, look forward to get going. Well, fantastic. Uh, I, I'd love if we could start uh, this journey today with, with some questions about your experiences in Asia and then kind of work back through time to, to your experience while you were here at UD. Uh, so maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit more about Sidley Austin uh, and, and specifically their, their practice in Asia. What kind of law you know, how big was the operations, those kinds of things? Sidley initially planted the flag, Trevor, in, in Asia in the uh, mid-80s in Singapore. Sidley Austin LLP is an international law firm headquartered in Chicago that currently has about 2,000 lawyers across 20 offices worldwide. It is well known for its securities practice and was the seventh largest law firm in the world based on revenue, according to the 2021 Global 200 survey. That was our, our first, and for a number of years, almost 10 years, our only office uh, in uh, Asia. It was tiny, usually two or three lawyers, uh, primarily representing uh, U.S.-based clients that were doing business uh, in Singapore. Uh, we practiced U.S. law, uh, no uh, foreign law whatsoever, and uh, that was basically our Asia practice until... Uh, the mid-90s. Uh, and, uh, and we'll get into this in a little bit more detail later during our conversation, but uh, things started to happen uh, in Asia, China specifically, uh, starting in uh, the mid-late 80s in a significant way. And that started to have uh, repercussions uh, throughout Asia. Uh, and we took notice of that and decided that uh, we needed to uh, expand our footprint and actually have a real presence in that part of the world. Uh, so we, we then launched an office uh, in Tokyo. And then shortly thereafter, we went to uh, uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and finally, uh, Sydney. Uh, it's, as you might imagine, all of those offices had some connection with what was going on in China, uh, although the, the Sydney office is probably not intuitive as to why that was. But uh, interestingly, uh, because of China's need for natural resources and uh, Australia's uh, plentiful supply of those resources, 
the connection between Australia and China really started to deepen. Uh, and that threw off uh, a variety of different uh, work for, uh, for lawyers, particularly those that were uh, practicing in uh, U.S. law. The, uh, the type of practice that we had uh, beyond the, the nature of, uh, uh, of the legal system uh, really related directly to what was going on in that part of the, the world. And as students of economics know, the, the three key drivers of economic growth are population, productivity, and capital. Uh, well, as China was growing uh, and other countries then started to follow suit, uh, they needed capital. Uh, and that capital uh, largely came from uh, the developed countries, the United States, uh, most importantly, but also to a, a certain extent, Europe and uh, Japan. Uh, and so that was the, uh, the focus of our practice. Uh, nearly all of the, the different practice areas that we were um, uh, working in uh, involved finance in one way or another, whether it was uh, straight lending, bank loans, that type of thing, IPOs uh, in uh, uh, Hong Kong, for example, or China-based companies uh, issuing IPOs in the United States. Uh, they, were, uh, they were all finance-related. And then the, the other thing I wanted to mention about culture, one of my French, my fr uh, several of my friends back in the U.S., the, the question they would always ask me uh, when we came back for visits was, uh, well, Tom, what what do you guys eat over there? Are you getting tired of going to McDonald's? Because I, I hear that, you know, you have to go to McDonald's. It's the only food that Americans eat, can eat. And <laughs> the food in Asia, every place I went, Trevor, everywhere from, you know, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, Japan, China, any the the most remote place in China, the food was just fantastic. And uh, so if anybody's thinking about going there, uh, but are hesitating because of the food, don't hesitate. I, I think you've got to be willing to get outside of your comfort zone though, right? If, if people aren't willing to try new things, they're, they're going to be scared of the food because it, it looks different. It smells different. But uh, if you can, if you can get outside, you know, my, my eight-year-old always is a battle to get him to eat food. Uh, he, he would struggle in Asia because the food didn't look right to him. But uh, I, I've been, I've, I've only been, to, I've been to China one time. I've not been anywhere else in Asia, but I, I would agree. I, I ate really well while I was there. Yeah. It's um, uh, a buddy of mine, when we announced we were moving there uh, said, well, Tom, this is going to be a great adventure uh, for you. And, and he was right. I mean, it was a, a glorious adventure, you know, in, in so many different respects. Um, so I, I highly encourage anybody who has the opportunity to visit or stay there for a longer period of time to do so. So there's a there's a lot of change uh, that's that's going on in, in that part of the world, uh, you know, from the the legal environment in, in Hong Kong uh, to the the increased scrutiny on on Chinese technology companies. You know, what in what in your opinion is is the most intriguing current event in in Southeast Asia, and, and how do you see these changes impacting our current students as, as they go off into the business world? Let me. Um, it's an easy question. Yeah. <laughs> Let me start by mentioning um, the following factoid that I saw recently. Uh, in the last uh, 
20 years, 30 years, uh, 20, 30 years. Um, the, uh, um, the number of people uh, in the world who are living in extreme pover- poverty has declined by 1.25 billion. And that's despite the fact that during that 30 year period, uh, the population, overall population uh, around the globe grew by 2 billion. Uh, and, to, and to think about that differently, uh, Trevor, the, in the last 200 years, uh, the percentage of the population that, has, that was living in extreme poverty has declined from 94% 200 years ago to 10% today. Uh, and when you analyze that and think about that, uh, you know, a lot of that uh, poverty elimination uh, is due to what's happened in Asia, uh, particularly over the last, uh, you know, 30, 50 years or so. Uh, and a lot of what's happened in Asia is due to China. It is my view that most of our students, uh, current recent graduates or to be students, uh, can have very successful careers in business without really knowing much about China. Uh, uh, it's just, there's a, the US's uh, footprint is large enough uh, so that you know, we don't have to become uh, internationally savvy, uh, but, <laughs> The, uh, the adventures, uh, the excitement, the potential career success that someone uh, could have or could experience if he or she were to answer the question, uh, you know, we're expanding into this part of Asia or that part of China. Do you have any interest in helping us out? Or can you bring yourself up to speed on what's happening in that country or this country? Um, there are opportunities that a yes uh, answer to that question uh, would be offered to uh, our students that, that um, cannot be uh, overstated. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about globalization um, and it, that it's dead uh, because of the, uh, the current issues that we have uh, with China, uh, among other countries. And don't believe that for a second. Uh, it may change. Uh, Axios, I, I picked this up the other day, said that uh, 69% of all new U.S. manufacturing jobs added in the past five years in the United States were, were created by global companies, you know, not U.S. companies, global companies, 69%. Uh, it, Globalization is, is not dead. It, it will change. Uh, there'll be more outsourcing and things like that. But, uh, you know, that part of the world is going to continue to uh, be really important. Uh, and now to get a little political, uh, the um, news report on Monday of this week, uh, when uh, the government of China announced that uh, there was a three-hour limit. Have you heard about this uh, for gaming by teenagers? Uh, and that would be effective immediately. Uh, I think says a lot about China and where it's going and what it's doing. And just, just one um, aspect of that is think of the surveillance 
that is needed in order to implement that. Uh, and apparently a lot of uh, teenagers were using their, their parents' uh, IP addresses or whatever their personal IDs were to get to log on uh, in these internet cafes, which by the way, I've seen uh, in operation and they're kind of scary, you know, row after row after row of kids playing video games. So I've never seen anything like it. And, um, and now they're, they're basically requiring facial recognition uh, as, as a form of ID. And so the kids are going to be locked out and it'll be really interesting to see how that, uh, how that works. I read that, that report on Monday and I, and I just sort of chuckled to myself. Um, it, and, and I chuckled because I, li- mm-hmm. I limit my own children's <laughs> amount of time they're allowed to be on a screen or, or gaming or whatever. Um, but I, but I, at the same time, I found it uh, crazy that, that a government would, would do the same thing uh, for, for all of its, all of its citizens. Um, you know, so there's, there's a interesting uh, dichotomy there, but uh you know, another thing you mentioned brought me back to, I was, I was there in China, I think this was probably 2014 or 2015. And sort of two, two stories I wanted to share. One is we, I flew into um, Nanjing, which is a, a city I'd never heard of prior mm-hmm. to booking, booking my flight. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm picturing flying into Nanjing is probably like flying into Dayton. Right. And, and I got there and you're chuckling. All right. Do you know how big Nanjing is? What population of Nanjing is? I'm just guessing. I don't know, but I would say somewhere um, eight to 15 million. Yeah. I'm pretty sure when I was there, it was 10 million. Right. Blew my mind. Right. What's the population? You're from Chicago. What's the population of Chicago? The city is two and a half. The suburbs included uh, right around maybe six and a half, seven. Yeah. So this, this place is, is, a city I've never even heard of in China, and it's significantly larger than the city of Chicago, totally blew my mind. And then we went to Suzhou. Uh, I may not be saying that correctly, but that's a, a city where the university um, used to have a facility. And, and there, I think the population was six or seven million. Uh, and just yeah. the, the, the number of cities in China that are larger than almost every city in the U.S. just really, really blew my mind. In 2012, we opened the University of Dayton China Institute in the Suzhou Industrial Park in China. This was a 68,000 square foot facility about 75 miles from Shanghai, where we ran semester long study abroad programs. Our academic operations at the Institute were closed in 2019 after struggling to attract enough faculty and student interest. And then the other sort of coming back to the government being able to to actually enforce this rule that, you know, people can only have three hours of gaming in, in a day. Our students that were over there, I was talking to one of the, the professors who was teaching in China while I was there from UD. And she told me that her students were having a fight in the classroom as they were discussing um, Tiananmen Square, because one of the students from China had come to the U.S. and studied and was able to search on the internet for anything they wanted. The other student had never left China, but they were in the same classroom in China. And so the, the one was saying, you know, this happened in Tiananmen Square. And the other one was saying, no way, that definitely did not happen. And, and it blew my mind that there's so much regulation of what they can see on the internet that, that you could not even know that that event occurred. In 1989, protesters in China, mostly students advocating for greater political freedom, 
began gathering in Tiananmen Square, one of the most famous landmarks in China. After weeks of debate, the military entered Tiananmen Square in early June with tanks and heavily armored troops, opening fire and or crushing those who tried to block their way. The Chinese government claims about 200 people lost their lives. However, other estimates suggest it may have been multiple thousands. The Chinese government now attempts to remove any mention of the incident from internet sites that are accessible in China. Now, that's it. That's um, um, that's one of the concerns that I have about. Excuse me, what's going on in Hong Kong? Because uh, you know, they're uh, the CCP directly or indirectly now is uh, trying to govern what is taught in the Hong Kong schools, and and that's um, you know, which means 30, 40 years from now. Uh, the kids from Hong Kong won't know what happened either in 1989 uh, in Tiananmen Square. So, when did you first go to Asia, and and how did you end up moving there full time? I uh, started. Um, uh, let me think. I think in '85, 1985 was my first uh, business trip to uh, Asia. Uh, it was Tokyo and also Hiroshima, uh, and it, it related to a, a finance transaction that I was involved in representing a J- Japan-based company uh, that had operations in the United States, uh, and that uh, my specialty was uh, in, broadly speaking, structured finance, securitization, and with particular emphasis on what ultimately became you know, cross-border aspects of that. Uh, and it, it was a, a technology, a legal technology that we developed in the United States, but uh, really moved quickly around uh, the globe, first in, in London and then in Asia. And because I was involved in this uh, particular practice, uh, that started my Asia uh, interest and, uh, and connection, and then most importantly, the, the travel. Um, and so that it began then, and it just expanded uh, you know, from 85 to uh, in the next 10 years, uh, you know, very rhythmically almost to the point where I was, I was heading over there instead of once or twice a year uh, in the mid nineties, late nineties, it was six times a year. Wow. And, and so you, you finally went full-time what around 2010? Uh, it was, in 2010, we moved. My wife and I moved to uh, Hong Kong in uh, January, and we had spent um, several months in 08 and 09 uh, in Hong Kong uh, before that. Uh, and so, and we didn't we didn't really intend to move in January of 10. To be honest, we uh, packed a couple of suitcases as we had the prior two years. Uh, went to Hong Kong and I decided I really needed to stay there because we were just starting this growth uh, process. Actually, by 2010, we were in the middle of it. Uh, And, you know, that I I mentioned this previously, but we we had three, four lawyers in all of Asia in the mid 80s. And when I left, we had um, 200 uh, lawyers and staff members uh, out there combined. So, uh, there was a lot of growth and you really had to be uh, on the ground uh, to, to see that through and make sure that uh, I was uh, properly transferring the culture uh, of the firm, the U.S. culture of the firm back to that part of the world. Well, speaking of culture, right, what, what was the biggest culture shock to you 
from, you know, maybe it wasn't so big for you when you finally moved because you'd been there months at a time, but when you first spent significant time in that area, what was surprising and, and difficult for you? You know, what, what's interesting, I, I, um, it, I'm, got, I'm not going to answer the way you probably expect me to answer, at least not initially. The hardest thing for me in the first few trips was trying to, to get, you know, go from location A to B, to be honest. Uh, and I, I still remember uh, that first uh, Japan client trip that I had. I was told, whatever you do, don't take a cab from Narita Airport to downtown Hong Kong. Or, I'm sorry, downtown Tokyo. And uh, because it was, I don't know, 200 $250, uh, which back then was, was real money. <laughs> and so they said, I said, well, how am I supposed to get there? Take the bus. I said, oh, okay. And it didn't dawn on me to ask them, okay, how do I take the bus? You know, where is it going to be? How often does it run? Uh, do I have to pay in advance? How do I buy a ticket? And, uh, you know, English, you could get by you know, generally in Tokyo then uh, with English, uh, my language skills are atrocious. So I, I never picked up fluency in any of the various languages that I was dealing with. But um, you learn, Trevor, just to follow people that you think know what they're doing. And that's what I did. I picked, I picked a guy out that was on my plane. And I, you know, I didn't talk to him, but I, I figured he, know, he looks like he knows what he's doing. So I followed him. Uh, figured out where the buses were, figured out how to buy a ticket, and then um, figured out how to uh, make sure I was on the right bus that would drop me off at the uh, the right hotel. And so um, that was uh, that was the start of it. And then you just you start absorbing uh, the culture as you need to, uh, you know, with subsequent uh, visits and subsequent uh, trips. Um, I I. I do remember, you know, I, fluency was not my game, so I, I didn't try to uh, learn the language that way. But I, I did try to pick up some expressions, you know, in Japanese and Chinese, et cetera, so that at least people knew that I was not a complete rookie uh, at this. Um, but the, the other thing that I learned, particularly in China, because uh, I spent so much of my time in Asia and China, was... Um, their version of what you know we refer to as idioms, um, they have their own expressions. And uh, I'll share one anecdote. Uh, we were working on a, a very complicated um, uh, workout. It was a company that was in uh, financial distress and ultimately filed for bankruptcy uh, in the Cayman Islands. And there was a, a China-based company, and it was it was just it was very complicated with lots of different equity owners. Uh, and we were preparing uh, to make a presentation to the board as to a course of action that we were advising the company to take. And my colleague at, at the firm who was uh, native-born uh, Chinese, you know, I, I said, okay, how are we going to make sure that they understand how urgent this course of action is and how important it is that they take the steps that we're recommending. And his answer was, oh, Tom, just, you know, you tell them and they'll understand. I said, no, 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 no. I've been through this already with this group. <laughs> that has not worked uh, uh, terribly well all the time in the past. So uh, he gave me um, an idea 
And um, I, I then, okay, I'm going to use that idea. And so I went into this board meeting, had the presentation and Trevor, most of the, and everything was, was simultaneously being translated. So I was speaking in English and it was being translated by interpreter, you know, to the, to the board uh, directors and other key officers. And they're looking at their iPhones. They're reading other stuff. I could tell that they were not, they were hearing me, but they weren't listening to what I was saying. And so I used the expression that my colleague gave me. And I said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, they are now polishing our coffin and we need to take some action to prevent that from happening. And the, the phrase polishing the coffin is used in China uh, to um, uh, prepare someone for, um, in this case, the death of the company. Uh, and so they got it. iPhones went down. Everybody picked, they started asking all these questions in Chinese. And it was, uh, um, that, that was one of just dozens and dozens of cultural lessons and uh, ideas that I picked up when I was over there. And then just to complete the story, because this, there's, there's a, uh, a mutuality about this. Uh, one of my colleagues tried to use American idioms. And, and I saw this in China as well. You know, so that he could uh, impress Western clients with uh, his knowledge of uh, the U.S. or Europe, whatever it might be. And uh, so one of his uh, expressions that he used a few times, and I ultimately had to correct him, was, uh, well, when push comes to shovel, this is what we're going to have to end up doing. <laughs> and uh, so it was kind of it was it was very humorous. Uh, uh, to, to think about how uh, the culture invades uh, in a very uh, interesting way uh, what it was that, uh, you know, just doing business there. So you're going to be teaching a class this spring here, here at UD, uh, and, and you're going to get into some of the, probably some of the same material we're, we're talking about here today. Can you tell us a little bit more about the class and, and what, what excites you uh, about teaching it? China, as, as we've talked about already, uh, has had this amazing growth period uh, in the last 30, 40 years. And you know what? So has the United States. Uh, you know, the U.S. economy has done extraordinarily well uh, over the last four decades. It, it hasn't always been a straight line up, but the trend line is certainly uh, there for anybody to see. And when I stepped back and thought about it, what caused the U.S. to achieve that economic success and what caused China also to achieve its economic success, there were some awfully interesting parallels uh, about, um, you know, the past 40 years in each country. And so we're going to explore what they are, what those parallels are. Um, now we find ourselves at a, a, uh, a junction point uh, because the uh, growth and prosperity, and quite frankly, you know, the militancy and um, the uh, actions that China has taken, you know, as we've talked about with the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, et cetera, have created uh, envy, competition, concern uh, among other countries uh, in the developed world, including the United States. And, and so there's a lot of conversation these days, well, how are we going to address that? How are we going to meet the China challenge going forward? 
Um, and, and so there have been discussions of, uh, well, we, we need to uh, move in this direction or we, we need to move in that direction. Uh, and as I've been thinking about it, I, why would we do that? <laughs> you know, why would we start to deviate from a path that has proven to be pretty successful and to experiment with different paths just to meet a challenge you know, that, that China is now uh, offering. Uh, and, you know, one example of that is, is uh, income inequality, which, you know, we, we need to address in this country. I'm, I'm all in favor of that, but we need to define what it is, uh, what's, how, big the, how big is the problem, and then compare that conversation that we're having in this country with the, uh, the goal recently announced by President Xi of common prosperity, which is, you know, required, he's now demanding that prosperous companies, some of the leaders uh, in his country's economy, uh, you know, give back, contribute to uh, the common prosperity of, of everybody. I mean, call it what you want. Is that income redistribution? You know, is it heavy taxation? Is it, uh, you know, penalty regulation? Uh, it, you, can, you can define that. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, I think, as well, and, and consider that in the course of the, uh, the class. Remind me, Tom, what, what's the title of the course? Um, <laughs> At one is, point, it was Capitalism and Entrepreneurship. I don't remember what, what we settled on recently. It is uh, China's challenge to American free market capitalism. And your memory is, is perfect because initially I was going to focus on American free market and entrepreneurship solely, but I've, I've brought in the China connection and I think it's, it, it provides for a, a much richer and timely conversation that hopefully students will be interested in. I, I think it sounds amazing. Uh, so I, I, if I'm, I think this is a special topics course in economics is how we're going to list it in the catalog. So any of those, uh, undergraduate students listening to us. I, I hope you check it out. Uh, Tom's uh, a wealth of knowledge. And obviously, as, as you've heard earlier in this podcast, has some, some really great experiences in Asia that, that you'll get to hear more about in that course. Tom, go, going back to, to, to UD, you know, were, were there, so speaking of economics, you know, were there any economics courses that really sort of helped you early, early in your career or, or in your days in law school? Um, yes. <laughs> I, Good answer. I, Remember, I'm an economist. I, I know that. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, I, uh, a, a couple of things on this, on this topic, uh, Trevor, if you, uh, if you would permit me, um, uh, my my first economics course was uh, in microeconomics. Uh, John Rapp taught it, uh, and I, I remember walking out of there after the I don't know third, fourth, fifth class, something like that. And I said to myself, "Ah, so this is this is how the business world operates." And it was really uh, and and literally that is that that was my reaction. I had no clue. Uh, when I walked into that first class, uh, what economics was all about, and more importantly, what it would tell me, its study would tell me about how businesses operate, you know, and, and I later took a macro course, as, as you would imagine, and, and got a, a, a broader perspective 
uh, of what economics means, um, you know, more broadly speaking. Uh, but that really shaped uh, a lot of what I ended up doing uh, in the following 40 years after I graduated uh, uh, from uh, UD. But there was something else that I learned uh, at UD. And, and again, this is, I mean, it's just coincidental, but there was a, a blurb today that I read on, uh, from Axios. And, um, and they uh, summarized um, some statistics, which, which I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, but they, that um, technology companies are now recommending that high school students skip college and go uh, directly to what is called coding college. If you want to become a software engineer, forget you know, the four years, we're going to teach you or somebody's going to teach you all that you need to know in whatever it is, six months about um, software and, and creation of code, et cetera. And I just, I thought, what a awful idea that is to uh, high school seniors. Uh, you know, speaking from my own perspective, I mean, I didn't, you know, I, I went to UD as a pre-med major and, you know, I'd, I'd never been outside the United States um, and look what I ended up doing. Uh, and UD has a unique place, I think, in higher education, um, not just because it, it provides that liberal education, which, you know, we find, you know, so important, um, but it does so from the Marianist tradition and the Marianist background uh, which includes, by the way, things like, uh, you know, cultural uh, adaptation and interaction, uh, adaptation to change, agility, et cetera. Prepare yourself for changes that will occur uh, during your professional lifetime. And I just have this nightmare scenario that, that some kids go to this software engineering six-month crash course, and after three years, they decide they hate it. You know, it's just not what they want to do. Or worst case scenario, five years from now, uh, most software is created by um, computers, AI, algorithms. Uh, what are they going to do then? Uh, and I just, I, and, and, you know, back to your question, I mean, the, the broad education that um, I received, the specifics of economics, but the broader education, you know, the, the fact that the world is this big place and it's got a um, rich history, whether it's literature, uh, science, uh, the other art, arts, uh, or in this case, you know, these, these wonderful ideas, economic theories that, that make the world tick. Uh, you need all those and you draw on them. And I can, I can tell you, I did. You draw on all that stuff as a professional. Uh, it's not just book work that you have to do to get your degree. Uh, it is work. It is learning and, and education that comes in handy um, throughout your career. So outside of the economics class, what's the course that, that sticks out in your brain the most from your time at UD? Hmm. Um, I would, uh, I don't know if it's a course, but I took uh, two or three classes from the same English professor, um, Dr. Ruff, R-U-F-F. -F. Uh, and he taught me how to write, Trevor. And 
and to uh, and to write coherently, uh, but more importantly, uh, to develop an idea and then uh, know how to communicate it in a in a positive way. And what I ended up doing professionally. Uh, requires you know a number of skills but communication skills and in particular written skills are critically important i can remember my first class well one of my first classes my first semester as an undergrad uh i went to a small liberal arts school uh, called center college in kentucky and you had to take a humanities course and and the humanities course involved a lot of writing and the first paper assignment i I was due at four o'clock I turned it in at 4.05, and I thought I had done a really good job. I was really, really proud of it. I turned it in, got it back two days later, and it's just covered in red. The entire thing is covered in red. Um, I, I think I got a, I got a D minus on it. I, I would have had a D, but he, he took off a half a grade because it was five minutes late. And, you know, so I, I learned to be prompt, and, and I started to learn to write. I didn't, I didn't learn immediately, but it, that semester – it was it was beaten into me, um, and 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 probably one of my more valuable uh, lessons in in college. So communication is certainly extremely valuable. Um, Tom, we're we're getting close to the end of our time here, and I, I'd love to talk about uh, a little bit about campus. Um, you know, a lot of our alumni that we speak with when they come back to UD, they want to go find their house. Uh, you know, this is the address I lived at as a senior or or whatever. Is there, a, is there a place, is there a, a spot on campus that you sort of reminisce about and want to see when you come back? I lived for two years, Trevor, in, in Stewart Hall up on the hill. Uh, great time. I, I mean, just fantastic time up there. Uh, it, it's still there. I haven't seen the dorms, uh, so I'd be curious to take a walk through there at some point. <clears throat> but the building is still there. And I also, and this is a long story, which I won't go into right now, but I ended up uh, in what was then called the math house, uh, my junior and senior year, uh, which was on Wayne Avenue. The houses, for the most part, were, were awful. I mean, barely livable. <laughs> and, and part of the problem was that most of them were owned by private landlords uh, who just didn't take care of them. And the university was uh, unable, really, to do much about it. Uh, this house was different. And it was uh, very well uh, equipped uh, for six guys, uh, and uh, it it was comfortable. Uh, I mean, more than comfortable. And and anybody who came over to see it was very envious of us. Um, that was on Wayne Avenue, and I drove by there a few years ago, and it's gone. Uh, so uh, it's no more. But that those were the two. Uh, Two places I spent my four year, well, three and a half years. I graduated in December early in, uh, in 75, but I'm part of the class of uh, 76. And is, was there a spot you liked to eat when you, were, when you were a student? Without question, Milano's. Milano's is not currently a sponsor of this podcast. So to our friends on the corner of Brown Street and Lowe's, you're getting this promo for free. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, we didn't eat there very often. It was basically uh, takeout. Uh, as I'm sure is the case for students listening now, uh, we were always short of cash. Uh, and so the cheapest thing we could do was to get Milano's. Uh, and we had our own drinks. We bought our own drinks or, you know, brought them from the, uh, the, the, um, 
the dorm cafeteria. And we always had pizza on Sunday because the dorm uh, cafeteria was closed then. And I, th I think it was the best and the cheapest food we could find. Uh, and I mean, every Sunday for three and a half years, we had the same doggone pizza. <laughs> so uh, never forget Milano's. Other than, than your house on Wayne being gone, what's, what's the biggest difference to you between campus now and campus when you were a student? The biggest change by far is the size of the campus. Um, you know, I, I, I remember well, like it was yesterday, Brown Street, west of Brown Street, all NCR. And I'm sure you've seen pictures, Trevor, of it. Uh, but it, the, the property was row after row after row after row of factory building or office building. Uh, and we used to walk by there on our way to UD Arena for a game. Uh, and it, now it's nearly all of those have been torn down and new buildings have been constructed. I think the old headquarters building of NCR is still there. Um, but I, I don't know what it, it doubled or tripled the size of the original campus. And there's so much more space and the students these days are so much uh, luckier <laughs> than we, we were, uh, back then. So that, that's a huge change. And it was, it was, um, uh, very, very forward looking for, you know, our, our administrators to make that decision when they did. Yeah. The NCR building you're referring to, I, th I think is now Fitz Hall. Fitz Hall. Uh, it's right yes. there on Brown street. And then, right. you know, as you head, as you head from, from let's say Brown and Stewart and you walk towards the bridge and, and over towards, uh, towards the arena, you know, that was a couple of years ago, that was just all vacant. That had been all torn down. And now you've got, you've got the Helix, the Emerson building, and then you've got the, um, the GE building right over there right. as well. So we're, we're starting to utilize some of that space. But yeah, the, the footprint of campus, even from when I got here in 2007, is significantly bigger. Do, do you have any stories that you can share with us from your time here, you know, realizing we've got a, we've got a broad audience, uh, maybe, a, maybe a PG version of a story. Um, I'll make it G rated. How's that? That'd be uh, even better. Yeah. The, the, um, and I mentioned already walking to UD arena. Uh, I, you know, the, my buddies and I would go to as many games as we could. We couldn't go to every game because I can't remember exactly how it worked, but there was a lottery or some system. So the tickets were always, scarce, but whenever we could grab one, we grabbed them and went. Um, March, uh, I don't know, early mid-March of 74, so it was my sophomore year, uh, UD played Notre Dame. Notre Dame was just then ranked number one in the country, and this is, this is the UCLA era where UCLA won it every year. And in fact, they won it that year, the NCAA tournament and championship. Uh, but I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but Notre Dame replaced them as the number one team. And they were number one, I think, for a week or two. And they came down to UD and we beat them by 15 points. Uh, and to this day, uh, I have not attended a sports event that was louder, more exciting, uh, more self-fulfilling than that, uh, that evening. And, uh, it was, uh, I still remember calling my then girlfriend, now wife from a payphone. Yes. We used to have payphones in UD arena. Uh, and I was uh, barely able to talk to her because I was so hoarse from screaming. Uh, and I, you know, 
I, because it's G-rated, I won't tell you what happened when we got back to campus, uh, <laughs> but you can probably look in the archives and uh, know what happened uh, when the students made that trek from UD Arena back to uh, the student housing, but uh, it was all lots of fun. I came here in 2007, and, and I'm from Kentucky, a big Kentucky Wildcat fan my, my whole life. You know, I'd say I, I bleed blue and got to Dayton, and everybody's talking about the Dayton Flyers. You know, you got to go watch the basketball team. And so I, I went and got basketball tickets because I figured I'm a huge college basketball fan. And I was up in the 400 seats, which there's really not a bad seat in UD Arena, but right. it, it's not a great seat either. And I had those for most of the season, early season you know, they're not playing many good games and I'm, I'm a little suspect still. I'm not really on board with uh, that. I'm, I'm fully a Dayton flyer. And, and one of my friends, his wife actually through her law firm, got really lower level seats and, and they invited me to come to the game and Dayton was playing Pittsburgh. And, and I don't remember their ranking, but it was, let's say, call it two or three at the time. So I'm going to say this was December of 2007 and they had a whiteout. So they, they put white shirts on everybody's seats and white towels and, and I'm, I'm starting to get excited as you come in the arena. And then I think it was Brian Roberts was the point guard at the time. And Dayton just blows out Pittsburgh, you know, comes in ranked two or three and Dayton beat them by, I think, 30 points. And, and I'd say I've been a Flyer fan since, since that game. So there's, there's been other good games, but that's the one that, that you pick out. That's, that's probably the one I would pick out. Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down and chat with me. Um, any, uh, anything else you want to share with us before we go? One last thing, Trevor, if I may, I, I, I do think, and this is a, a request, I guess, to you as, uh, uh, interim Dean and, and one of the senior administrators around the, the campus these days. Uh, I spent some time talking about, uh, my international experiences, um, I also mentioned the Marianist uh, tradition of encouraging um, international uh, international uh, interaction, you know, cultural interaction. Uh, I know that uh, COVID has really put a damper on uh, the the uh, international uh, student uh, attendance slash admissions, et cetera, for the university. But I hope that uh, UD will uh, resume that as soon as uh, feasible, uh, because I, I do think it is incredibly important uh, to not just the individual students that we're educating, but more broadly speaking, to our country. And you know, back to that Axios report about uh, um, the uh, coding college that some technology companies are now encouraging. And I, I, I thought about that earlier today and I asked myself, if, if vocational training like that becomes um, more prevalent, how will American citizens be able to make decisions civically uh, about the right course of, of action to take in X country or Y country and what policies support and, and not support if they don't have you know some... Uh, background, historical background, and again, focusing on the Marianists, just the the religious slash moral uh, traditions that that they try to uh, to teach, and that knowing and understanding other cultures is so much part of that. So that's my request. Uh, it, I'll end on the, I'll end with that. Thanks. All right, for your request is I, I and I and I agree with you. You know, I I went to 
undergraduate, I didn't have many, many international students that I interacted with. Graduate school, I was actually in the minority. There were very few domestic students. And, and so that's, that's where I really got to, to learn from and engage with people from different cultures and, and still have some great friends from China and India and, and Eastern Europe that, that I went to grad school with and have helped sort of shape and inform my view of the world. Uh, so I, I certainly hope that our students get to get to engage in that way. Uh, I can tell you international uh, student admissions at UD are, are coming back in the graduate space uh, currently, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll come back in the undergraduate space in, in the not too distant future. Good. Good so, to hear. Well, thanks yeah. for this opportunity, uh, Trevor. It's been uh, wonderful chatting with you for the last hour, and, and I appreciate your um, uh, willingness to listen to all of my stories. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time, Tom. I'm sure uh, many of the many of our listeners enjoyed hearing about your stories in Asia and, and taking a little trip down memory lane, thinking back to their times at UD. So I hope you have a great rest of summer. Look forward to seeing you on campus here soon. Uh, I hope our, our listeners will join us again on the next episode of the Business Class Podcast. Go Flyers! Thanks for joining us for the Business Class Podcast. If you'd like to engage with us further, please follow us on social media, our Instagram and Facebook accounts all use the name SBA. You can also email the Dean's Office with questions or suggestions for future podcasts at sbadean at udayton.edu. No matter where you are on your career path, we are proud that you're part of our Dayton Flyer family.